Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. God does incredibly great things. Can I get an amen on that? I know in my life, sometimes the great things come through very small experiences. Um, Have you ever had one of those experiences that wasn't a large experience? It wasn't necessarily ground-shaking, but um, it just, it imprinted on you in a very significant way. Maybe a small thing that you just remember for a long time. I had that experience my very first week, I think it was, working here at the church, 20-something, 20 and a half years ago. They brought me on as the junior high director. It was First Baptist Church at that time. Brought me on as the junior high director, and I think it was like the first week of my uh, time working here, uh, we had this uh, service week. It was in the summer for the students where we went into the community and we did some service. And uh, we went over to this uh, church on the west side, a small Baptist church on the west side, doing great ministry, and we wanted to help them out, do some work around the, the, the church and do some uh, Bible uh, clubs for kids and such things. And when I went there, I was nervous. I, you know, it's my first thing I was in charge of, went and when I met the senior pastor of the church, you know, he came out to meet us and I, you know, I said, hi, I'm Travis Edgerton. I'm the, the director of junior high ministries at First Baptist Church. Good to meet you. I stuck my hand out. It's just so awkward and dumb. Uh, talking about who I was and, you know, so he'd know who I was. And he kind of looked at me and with just a smile, he just said, well, I'm the chief dishwasher and, and floor sweeper here. Nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, <ugh. laughs> and he was just so um, not into uh, his position. He just wanted to be a servant. He was so hospitable, and he just said, hey, come, and you and the kids, make yourselves at home here. We welcome you. Anything you need, you come ask me. I'm, I'm here to serve. And uh, it just imprinted on my mind um, the... And, and it stayed with me all through my ministry, not that I've always done it well, honestly, but um, this idea that just because you have a title and just because you are in charge of something doesn't mean you're anything. We're all servants. And that having power and title um, and authority is, is one kind of leadership. And that's not hard to find in this world, people who will kind of tap their badge and say, I'm in charge, do what I say. That's not hard to find in this world. But there's another kind of power, um, having power and knowing when to use it, and, <clears throat> and even being willing to lay it down for the good of others. That's a whole different revolutionary kind of power and leadership that you know you have power, you know you have authority, and yet you reserve the use of it. You don't strut around like you're important but you look at yourself and the power or authority you have as being a tool for the use of serving others. It's called meekness. I wish the word meek did not rhyme with the word weak because they couldn't be more different. Meekness is having power, but reserving that strength and only using what you need to. It's the picture of a gigantic bodybuilder guy who's ripped, but holding a newborn baby gently. He has power to destroy, but he doesn't use it. He uses it to comfort, to love, to show mercy and kindness. 
In our passage today, we're gonna see these two seemingly contrasting realities about Jesus. We're gonna see his unparalleled greatness on display for who he truly is. For the first time in Mark, you're gonna see a true glimpse of his whole identity. And yet, you're gonna see him talk about suffering and dying, things that don't tend to go well together, having power and yet submitting to death. You see, sometimes contrasts point out contradictions, right? Well, that, those things contrast, then something must not be true. But see, then sometimes the seeming contradiction forces us to redefine what we think. See, Jesus today is going to force us to refine and redefine how we think about power and how we think about greatness. Redefine power and greatness. In showing the disciples his amazing, this amazing glimpse of his true identity, Jesus will continue to redefine the true meaning of kingship, of ruling, and of being powerful. And so that we can get every ounce of meaning out of today's passage, uh, we're going to do a little bit of detective, detective work first in the Old Testament, if that's okay with you. Uh, if you it's, whether it's okay with you or not, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, but if it's okay with you, that's what we're going to do. Um, if, if you want to understand the books of the New Testament, you have to be acquainted with the content of the Old Testament. It's just the way it is. Now, let me show you. Um, let's just say the pastors at this church wanted to put on a little skit for you guys to teach you something. Wouldn't that be great? Um, and let's say here's our, the, the character lineup. You've got, uh, you've got uh, one character who is, is maybe on the shorter side, and uh, is wielding an axe and has amazing facial hair and eyebrows. Let's just have Kyle Belden play him. And then, and then you have his kind of compatriot that he's fighting alongside with who has a bow and arrow, tall, slender, looks only a fraction of his actual age, and has a fake New Zealand accent. <laughs> Maybe we could have Pastor Ross uh, play him. And, and, uh, and then you have this, this, this strong, stalwart, good, loyal friend who's going to help the main character out, and he's going to be pray, played by, by Brett Richmond. And Brett Richmond comes up onto this stage, and he picks me up, throws me over his shoulder, and, and yells out, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And then he runs up to the top of the stage with me, up, up to the mountain, and, and he puts me down and he says, you, you got to throw the ring into the lava. Now, you guys are all sitting in the lava because as we know, as kids, the floor is lava. And, and, and I come up to the precipice and as I'm about to throw the ring into the lava, I put it on and say no and I disappear. And then this other character who's shorter than me and bald <laughs> and and likes to run around with his shirt off, only wearing a loincloth. <laughs> I'm not sure who we could cast in that position. Maybe, maybe Matt Whiteford could step in that position for us. And, uh, and he bites my finger off and falls and burns in the lava. Now, let me ask you all, what story am I referring to? Lord, Lord of the Rings. You at home, Lord of the Rings, okay? Um... Let me ask you a question. What character was I playing? Picked up. Yeah, Frodo. Frodo, right? 
Let me ask you, did I ever tell you in any of that, what I was explaining to you, that I was talking about Lord of the Rings or that I was the character Frodo? No, didn't mention it once. Why? Didn't have to. It's something that in our culture, most people know the story and know which character is doing what. I want to tell you this right now. When the New Testament writers wrote what they were writing, they hyperlinked so much of what they were writing to the Old Testament. Where people originally reading these New Testament documents would know exactly what the writer was talking about, whether or not he said. It was obvious. And we're going to see this on high display today in Mark 9, starting at verse 2. Why don't you turn there? But before we go there, why don't you just uh, so open up to nine two, Mark 9.2. But I want to go and front load some Old Testament scripture that Mark is going to be doing some major hyperlinking back to. So brilliant, so artful the way he does it. Um, and we're going to be reading, I'm going to be reading from Exodus 24. I'll just read some selected verses for you. And maybe just close your eyes and, and try to imagine and picture the details that I highlight for you. Here we go. I'm going to start at Exodus 24, verse 1. Just close your eyes and get some of these details. Then he, God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, so three specifically named men, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So in this verse, Moses is going to go up on a mountain with three specifically named men. Okay, goes on in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, these three specifically named men and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. This is going to be very important. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, God, they were looking up and underneath his feet, like they're seeing a vision in the heavens, under his feet, as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief, of, chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. So God allowed them to see part of him in this dazzling display. But he doesn't strike them dead. He allows them to feast in his presence. So who do the people on this mountain see at the center of this dazzling vision? Who did they see? You can answer. It's okay. They saw the God of Israel in dazzling display on this mountain. Reading on at verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Then the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Remember that, six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses, out of the midst of the cloud, a voice comes out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, this glowing, dazzling, bright seen on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So, the details. This mountain is now covered with a cloud. And the length of time specifically mentioned here is how many days? Six days. Then a voice calls out from the cloud. And the vision of God on top of the mountain is this glorious, glorious, radiant glow. And directly after this passage, I won't read it all for you, but in Exodus, directly after this passage that I just described to you, God gives Moses instructions for building this tent. It's a tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant, where his presence would dwell, is going to be housed. 
So you have all this stuff happening, and then you have instructions about building a tent to house the glory of God. And let me throw in one more freebie for you because we all love Old Testament freebies, right? Deuteronomy 18th, I get excited about this stuff, guys. I'm sorry, if you're not nerding out right now, I feel sorry for you. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God, this is, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, prophesying to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Remember that quote. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses prophesies that God will raise up a prophet that is like Moses in some way, and the command is what? Listen to him. Okay, now. With these pass, I know, these passages and details front little, let's go to Mark 9, 2, okay? Now read carefully. Read with me carefully. And after six days, clue number one, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, three named men, and led them up where? On a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured, that just means transformed, his appearance changed before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And get this, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out From the cloud, this is my beloved son. What does he command? Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So you've got something about six days, and Jesus and three specifically named men go up on the mountain. One of the people on this mountain starts to glow. Moses and Elijah are even there. A cloud covers the place, and then a voice comes out of the cloud, repeating the same message prophesied 1,400 years before to Moses, and he says, listen to him. Listen to who? Listen to who? You at home, listen to who? Jesus. Why in the world would Mark embed so many similar details so that when we read this passage in Mark, we think about Exodus 24. Why would he embed all these clues and connections for one very large reason? He lines up all these identical details, but then right in the middle of it, he pulls a switcheroo, a literary sleight of hand. Let me ask you this. In the Exodus passage, with Moses on a mountain with three friends, Six days, cloud cover, all these things. Who is seen in the middle of this glorious, dazzling, glowing vision? Who's seen at the center of it? The God of Israel. The God of Israel is the glowing vision. But here in Mark, with all of these parallel details, let me ask you what Mark writes. Who is seen in the middle of this glorious, dazzling vision? glowing vision. Jesus. Switch. So in the place that we expect to see God show up, who stands in his place? Jesus. 
Mark is unquestionably making a huge claim. Mark, through this amazing literary trek he's taken us on, is saying this, Jesus is the God of Israel. Jesus is the God of the universe. And Peter is so blown away by this realization that he's speechless, except for the fact that he starts talking. He didn't know what else to say, so in his shock, he reverts back to history. What do I know of things I've seen like this? Uh, There's Moses, there's a mountain, there's clouds, a voice came out of the cloud. What comes next? Tents. Let's build a tent. That's what came after back then. Let's do that now. Let's build a tent for Moses and Elijah and for Jesus to house the glory of God. So the main point of this passage we've read, the transfiguration, from Mark's point of view, is to identify Jesus not only as the promised Messiah, but that this Messiah, Jesus, is also God. Not everyone in Israel at this point had the belief that the Messiah would be divine. In fact, I believe that most of them thought he would be a very special man, a prophet, but not necessarily God in the flesh. And so Mark is re-educating. He's saying, look, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you may be short-selling who the Messiah is. He is God. And this is only reinforced by the fact that the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament are present, and yet Mark doesn't quote anything that they say. He doesn't quote them at all. They're there, they're talking with Jesus. He doesn't quote them. And then after the voice from heaven and from the clouds says, listen to Jesus, listen to him, those two prophets, Elijah and Moses, they disappear never to be seen again. The two greatest prophets in the history of Israel are almost treated as scenery in comparison to Jesus. It's as if Moses and Elijah show up to hand off the baton to the ultimate prophet, priest, and king that we've all been waiting for. And then they step back and are no longer needed. Why? Because God showed up. The one they'd been prophesying about forever showed up. And he's who we need. So we have this gigantic revelation of Jesus as the divine God, Son of God, standing in the place where the God of Israel had always been seen in this vision, the God of the universe. And then Mark records this kind of whiplash conversation that Jesus has as they're coming down the mountain. Look at it at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, his disciples, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He starts talking about dying again. He starts saying, I'm going to die and raise from the dead. Don't say anything about what you just saw until then. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still cannot see the Messiah die. They just can't get it. And they asked him, and you'll see in a little bit here, they're actually pushing back with a little bit of a passive aggressiveness here, seeing if Jesus really knows what scripture says good try. They asked him, why do the scribes say then that first Elijah must come? Now they're quoting something from Malachi. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he asks another question. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come 
And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So a few things are happening here. Let me just kind of bring it, bring it together. Jesus once again brings the attention back to the fact that he must suffer and die. They've just seen this glorious revelation that he is God. And he starts saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But no matter how much Jesus has warned them, the disciples still have no concept of the Messiah dying. They think he's speaking in parables. They think he's speaking metaphorically about this dying and raising. They're still trying to convince themselves that he's speaking in metaphor. The disciples then passively aggressively push, passively aggressively, passive aggressively, is that right? Yes. Passive aggressively push back at what Jesus said about dying. They say, but the scribes say that Elijah must come. You see, they're referring to Malachi chapter 4, the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And in Malachi 4, we see this prophecy of what's called the day of the Lord, where all the wicked are smashed and brought to justice and God sets everything right again. And the very last words of this chapter are that Elijah's coming will precede this day of the Lord and everything will be made right. So what they're kind of saying is, so Jesus, if you read your Bible right, Elijah comes, which we just saw him, so he came, and then God blows away his enemies and everything is set right forever. Why are you talking about dying? If you read scripture rightly, Jesus, if you read Malachi 4, you would know that this dying stuff you're talking about is dumb. You see, the disciples were falling into a very common error in biblical study. It's called proof texting. Proof texting is where we find one verse or chapter that seems to reinforce what we already believe, and we use it to defend the beliefs we already have. But we ignore all the other things the Bible also says on that theme. We let one verse or one concept define what we believe while ignoring all the other biblical data that might speak into how we interpret that one verse or chapter. I believe this. I found a verse that seems to say that. I quote the verse to you, mic drop. You can't argue with me because I just quoted a verse. Done. That's proof texting. That's what the disciples just did to Jesus. Matt this week sent me a picture of a mug and I want it so bad. The mug says on it, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> oh, so good. And this is what they're doing. They're looking at Malachi, but they're ignoring the whole rest of what the Bible says about the Messiah. Jesus partly confirms what they're saying, but also pushes back against their proof texting by asking another question. He says, you're right. An Elijah-like figure comes back first, and we see in Matthew that Jesus is specifically referring to John the Baptist fulfilling this role. But then Jesus says, but what about all the stuff the prophets say about the Messiah suffering? You're quoting Malachi where it's the day of the Lord and everything's set right. But what about all the suffering? He says, yeah, I, I've read Malachi 4, but disciples, have you read Isaiah 53? the one about God's chosen messianic servant suffering and dying. Have you read that one? Because I've read both, and both are true. Yes, John the Baptist came in the same spirit as Elijah, calling the people of Israel to repentance. And, and you think that's what, that what is next is all flowers and rainbows and, and God reigning over the earth. It's because you've ignored all the other things that the Old Testament says about the Messiah. He says, 
But what happened to John? John, who came back in the spirit of Elijah, what happened to him? Oh, yeah, they beheaded him. And if they do that to the messenger, what do you think they're going to do to the person whom the message is about? I must suffer. I must die. Now, why do you think Jesus would work so hard to get his disciples to accept that he must suffer? And after such a glorious display of his divinity, brings the conversation back around to, I'm going to die. Two reasons come to mind to me. First reason, because Jesus is redefining for them what true power really looks like. What it really looks like to rule in the image of God. It's not power plays. It's not taking by force. It's not tapping on your badge and saying, I'm important, do what I say. It's not using violence and anger and cutting words. That is not what true power looks like. True power looks like I could do all those things. I could pay a power, play a power play on you, but instead, I'll die for you. That's power. That's greatness. These disciples had only, through their lives, ever seen that other kind of power, with the Romans being in charge and having this empire and, and the people in Israel fighting back and the zealots trying to kill the Romans and the Romans trying to kill the zealots and all the while the priests and the scribes saying, but we're important too, do what we say. That's all these disciples had seen was domination and force. But Jesus clearly shown to be the most powerful being in the whole universe. He's on top of a mountain shining. Do you realize that these disciples had never seen powered light? The only light they'd ever seen was stuff that's in the sky or fire. That's it. No mag lights. No security lights that light up every time you walk by your neighbor's house, and it's really annoying. Sorry, if you have one of those, it's good. They'd never seen powered light, and that Jesus is in the middle of the day, with a cloud cover on a mountain, shining like the sun. No lights shining on him, no LED, just him. Jesus is shown to be the most powerful being in the universe, but then he willingly will accept a beating in place of a victory march. He will willingly accept thorns instead of a crown. He will willingly hold nails in his hands instead of a scepter. And he will willingly occupy a cross as his throne. Jesus' message to all who would follow him is to hang on a cross, brutalized, bleeding, executed, is to hang on that cross and say, this is what ruling looks like in my kingdom. Follow me. That's what he said to them then. That's what he's saying to us now. Another reason I think that Jesus would mark this moment of glory with this discussion of the cross 
is because in the coming moment, when these three disciples would see Jesus crucified, hanging there, being crucified like a criminal, he didn't want there to be any confusion who exactly was dying for them. The God of the universe was dying for them. The God of the universe died for you. Have no confusion about that. The man who hung on the tree was fully man, and he died a man's death, but he also was fully God, and the God of the universe occupied a cross and, and died for you. God died for you. And so now, coming down from the mountain, Mark is going to further show us Jesus' power and identity on display. Verse 14, And when they came to the disciples, the other nine, They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Dun, dun, dun. Epic power struggle of the ages, a clash about to happen. Now, this response that Jesus gives of being frustrated and oh faithful or faithless generation how long am I sp- it's always bo- it's always bothered me a little bit it's always like I especially if you keep reading in the passage and you see later that Jesus is going to say this kind of demon only comes out by prayer like then why are you giving the disciples a hard time they were commanding it to come out and it only comes out by prayer so why are you responding this way Jesus we'll get to that but on the surface it feels to be a little bit unfair Either way, the drama builds and the pressure is on. The disciples couldn't do what they have been doing through the whole ministry. Jesus gave them authority to drive out demons. They've been doing it over and over and over and over again, but they couldn't this time. And so the question is, will Jesus, will he or won't he be able to cast a demon out out that his disciples couldn't? Remember, it was Jesus who gave them the authority to do this. And his authority didn't work. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? The father said, from childhood, this has been happening for a while. And it often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. Just feel this for a moment. Can we stop and feel what this father felt for a moment? This demon is assaulting and threatening and abusing the life of his child. This is how evil our enemy is. He attacks children. Think about that on this day, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Think about that. That's how evil our enemy is. He attacks kids who are made in the image of God. It's sick. It was sick then and it's sick today. And the enemy is not people. The enemy is Satan and his demons. 
he is our enemy and he's helplessly evil. But we have a king who's more powerful. Let's keep reading. The father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, this is not just a generic proclamation of like a Disney-esque, the power of belief. If you believe, whatever you want will come true. This is not this, okay? This is not Disney. Jesus is not wearing Mickey ears. Notice who is at the center of the question. The, the father says, Jesus, if, if you can do anything. So when Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes, the context is for one who believes in me, Jesus. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, this, this sentence is probably the one I relate with more than any in the Bible. The father cries out, I believe Help my unbelief. It's so contradictory and yet so true. Can I get an amen? He says, Jesus, part of me believes, part of me believes, but the other part doesn't. But the part of me that does believe wants you to fix the part that doesn't. That's faith. Right there, that's faith. He's being honest. I, I trust you, but I kind of don't. But because I trust you, the part that doesn't, Jesus, you're the only one that can do something about that. That's faith. Church, I want to say this to you, and there may be those in the room or those at home who are just having a struggle of the soul right now because everything you see around you makes you hopeless. Let me say this to you. The presence of doubt does not indicate an absence of faith. The presence of doubt does not indicate a complete absence of faith. Right here in the Gospel of Mark, we clearly see that faith and doubt will often coexist. But the faith that is there will lead us to ask for more and ask for more in ways we don't yet trust God. Are there things that you don't yet trust God in? Yeah. Are there things that you do trust God in? Yeah. And they live in the same person, you. And you're gonna notice here Jesus' response that even with this man's imperfect faith, Jesus is still willing to act. He says it's enough. I know your faith isn't perfect. I know you don't totally believe I can do this, and you probably have some reason to. But Jesus acts anyways. This is so encouraging. Look at this, verse 25. And when Jesus saw the crowd, they had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. What grace. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. Jesus, you killed him. 
But Jesus took him by the hand. This reminds me of the little girl that Jesus did actually raise from the dead. Took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They've been doing it over and over and over again. Jesus, what was different this time? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I think the reason that Jesus became irritated and frustrated with his disciples is because when they tried to command the demon to come out and tried and tried and tried and didn't work, they gave up. They thought that the power was in their command all the while not realizing that the power was not in their command, but in God's authority. And when they couldn't do it, they said, our tricks are done. We don't know what else to do. I don't have any tools in my tool chest. Rather than going to God and saying, God, we couldn't, but would you? But also notice, did you catch what Mark just did to us here, leaving it hanging like this with a quote from Jesus that doesn't quite add up? He leaves us hanging with Jesus' last words. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, the thoughtful reader will say, yes, but Jesus, you didn't pray. Anyone catch that? Only can be removed by prayer, but Jesus commanded, and it happened. And Jesus, with a silent smile, says, I have you in my trap. You're right. I'm the one you pray to. I'm the one who has authority to answer prayers. Jesus isn't just a good man. He isn't even just a prophet, though he was and is. Jesus, Jesus isn't just a man specially gifted by God. Jesus is God. And that is what Mark is proving here. A demon that can only be cast out by prayer from humans is cast out directly by Jesus. And Jesus has the authority to do what everyone else can only ask for. He's not the same as all of us. Did he experience life as we do with the frailty and difficulty and pain of humanity? Oh, yes. He experienced everything you have in the temptations that you do. But Jesus is God. And what we have to ask for, he can do. And yet this glorious God-man, Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, surrendered to be murdered on a cross. Church, I want to make some confessions here in front of you today, if that's okay. And I'm sure that these confessions only apply to me and would never be true of any of you or anyone else in the American church. I'm sure this is only me. Wink, wink. But I'm going to confess to you things that are true of me. Confession number one, I really struggle to believe that Jesus is in control. I'm preaching so animatedly to you about God and his power and who Jesus is, and yet in my life, I will verbally acknowledge Jesus' divinity all day long. But when things get difficult, I become a functional atheist. 
as if God can't do a thing about the things I'm seeing in this world. Confession number two. Like the disciples, I struggle to let go of my vision for what Jesus should and shouldn't do. Instead of letting Jesus make me in his image, I try to make him in mine. You see, I have a vision for how my life and the details surrounding me should go and how my family should be and how my kids' school district should make decisions and how my politicians should make decisions and how my state should be and how my government should be and how Washington, D.C. should be and how everything around my life should happen. And when I don't see it happen the way that I want, sometimes I even try to take it by force. All the while, Jesus' life and his words say to me, Travis, take up your cross and follow me. The cross was a device of execution. The cross means death. Take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your lethal injection and follow me. Take up your firing squad and follow me. And yet I have to have things my way all day. Confession three. I don't really believe that Jesus calls me to suffer for his sake. I'll preach it. Talk about it. Talk about being willing to suffer for his sake. I even verbally honor people who I see doing it. But when it comes my turn to suffer, how quickly I run back to comfort when God is trying to do something. And when my rights are stepped on, I go to war. And when my will to self-determine is in, pe in peril, I use the weapons and the forceful ways of this world to respond. Power plays, force, using my tongue like a weapon. And yet with all this mess and all those confessions being true, and I'm not just being falsely humble up here, what I said is true. When I come to Jesus and say, help my unbelief, he's more than happy to. His grace is greater than all my sin. He's better at forgiving and fixing than I am at sinning and breaking things. His job is to show mercy and restore. My job is to surrender and follow no matter what it costs. Like the band to come on up, we're gonna respond in worship to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we do, church, I just want to let you know that the call of Jesus on your life is not just a call to eternal life. Stay with me. The call of Jesus on your life is not just a call to eternal life. Jesus' call on your life is to die to yourself, for me to die to myself, and then eternal life. Death 
always precedes resurrection. There is no resurrection for you without a death coming first. Even Jesus modeled this for us. You and I have got to together as the family of God, as a church, we've got to figure out what it means to die to ourselves and to follow after him. There is nothing more serious, more pressing on your time and your focus, more worth your time and focus and energy than to answer the question daily, how do I die today? How do I die to myself, self-focused, idolatrous Travis? How do I die a little bit today and let Jesus step in my place? How do I let the selfish, me-centered, Travis idolatry religion that I worship at the altar of every day, how do I let that die and how do I let Jesus step in its place as the object of my worship, my will, my emotions, my decisions, my obedience? I can't answer this for you, and I wish that I could give you a bunch of steps to make this happen, but at the end of the day, this is not a how-to. It's a decision of the will. We must decide to follow Jesus. We must decide to die to self. And it's only possible with God's help. And the how-to of dying to self will only come if you take it seriously and spend time, effort, and honestly a lot of tears pressing into the heart of God and begging him to break you away from the cult of you, from the cult of me. God, make this true of us. We are weak and we are headstrong. And yet we need you. You are God, Jesus. You have shown yourself to be fully God, fully man, and yet you chose to die on a cross. You did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but you made yourself a servant and you submitted yourself to death on a cross so that at the end of time every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ God is Lord to the glory of God our Father Father, break us where we need to be broken and renew us, forgive us, and change us to be like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.